I'm so glad you're here today. Glad to get to worship together with you. As for the sermon, we're continuing in this series called A Name for Every Need. So let me just draw us back to Isaiah 9-6. By now, if you haven't already, I hope you have this memorized. Isaiah 9-6, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called. And each of these names has formed the basis of the four Sundays leading up to Advent for the message time. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Oh, this baby born, this Messiah given is going to be a wonderful counselor. There's no counselor like Jesus. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. For the Wonderful Counselor, we looked at Jesus' interaction with Mary and Martha at the tomb of Lazarus. For Mighty God, we looked at Jesus walking on the waves. And that brings us today to Everlasting Father. This baby, this child born, will have the name Everlasting Father. Now, right off the bat, we got a little uh, theological head-scratcher here. Do we not? How can the child born have the name Everlasting Father? What does it mean that Jesus can be called Everlasting Father? Well, here's what we know it doesn't mean. Right off the bat, we can clear this up. It does not mean that in the Trinity, the Son is the Father. We know because of the whole counsel of God that that's not the case. The Bible teaches that God is one God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So it doesn't mean that the Son somehow is the Father. What does it mean? Well, remember the context. Remember the prophet Isaiah is prophesying about this Messiah King who's going to set the world to rights. What does a king do? In the ancient Near East, kings were often described with the word father. Why? Because consider, it's a completely patriarchal society. And so a king's job was to do what? Was to have fatherly care for his subjects. Which means the king was to be, the father was to be what? Protector. Provider. See? He's going to protect the people. He's going to provide for the people. He's going to have fatherly care for his people. Father was thought of as the source, right? This is, you know, we, we got bread on our table. We got protection from the enemy because of the father was the source in a patriarchal society. And, and we, we use that, really we use that sense of the word, that eternal fatherly care. We use that same sense of the word father to mean source even today. We say that uh, Gregor Mendel is the father of genetics. Why? Because he is the biological progenitor of every geneticist? No, of course not. Because he's the source, right? George Jones is the father of country music. All right, I tried. <laughs> Johnny Cash, all right, I'll let you sort it out. But Gregor Mendel, we're sure of. We're sure of Gregor Mendel. All right, you get it. In fact, if you look at it from the other way, uh, in John chapter 8, in a negative connotation, in John 8, Jesus calls Satan... The father of lies. Why? Because he's the source from which all that falsehood and deception flows. 
Jesus then can be called everlasting father because he is eternally the source. He's, if you think about Colossians 1, in him all things were made, right? All things exist. Uh, in him all things uh, hold together in him. He is perpetually the source. And when we apply that name, that fatherly, eternal, everlasting fatherly care to Messiah, when you apply that to Jesus, it really makes sense. Jesus Messiah, did he not show the tenderness of a father? The compassion, the wise leadership to his flock forever. He showed us the fatherly love so perfectly. He so perfectly represented the father's love that when Philip says, well, show us the father, he's like, are you kidding me? Have I not been with you this long? He says, anyone who's seen me has seen the father. Why? Because he's such a perfect, accurate reflection of the fatherly love of God. Think about when Jesus was with his disciples. Did he not show fatherly care? Did he not treat them sometimes like a father, the way he would encourage them, the way he would discipline them? Didn't he have the patience? Have you ever heard the expression, oh, a face only a mother could love? You know that one? Yeah. Pretty cruel expression when you think about it, yeah. Well, didn't the, the apostles sometimes had an attitude only a parent could love? And Jesus loved them. He cared for them. You remember that... Uh, Remember that miracle when I think about the, the fatherly care of Jesus, the tenderness of Jesus? Do you remember that miracle in Mark where um, Jairus' daughter, Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, comes to, because his 12-year-old daughter's very sick. He's at the point of death. And as he's on the way, that woman with the issue of blood for 12 years reaches out and touches the hem of his garment. Because that interaction takes so much time, Jesus is late, from the world's perspective, late getting to the home of Jairus and he takes that and she's dead they said it's not worth your time now she's dead he goes in you remember this he tells her little girl get up and that 12 year old dead girl comes back to life and everybody's shocked and Jesus says well give her something to eat it's a great it's a great moment he calls her little girl but do you remember uh, on the way to the uh, on the way the woman with the issue of blood he doesn't call her little girl she reaches out She's healed. You remember the interaction? You know, who touched me? And they're going, what are you, all these people touch you? What are you talking about? Finally interacts with this woman. And he t- of all the things he could have said, he said, daughter, go, your faith has made you well. Now, I don't know. But I have to think that Jesus didn't call Jairus' daughter, daughter, because that little girl had a daddy who would advocate for her health care who would go all the way to Jesus to get the finest health care in the world. He ha- she had a protector. She had it. But that woman with the issue of blood, who did she have? She had Jesus. So he reached out and calls her daughter. I, don't, I may be making too much, but that, is that not what it means when we call Jesus everlasting father, his fatherly care and compassion? So, How do we illustrate, how do we show this fatherly care and compassion that that this Messiah is going to be like a father forever? Well, I I went to the New Testament to do Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God, but for Everlasting Father, I want to stay in the Old Testament. Turn to Psalm chapter 103. Psalm 103 is the text that I think we can look at to show, not just tell that Messiah is Everlasting Father, but show it. For one reason, the main reason I picked Psalm 103 is because Everlasting and Father are literally used right here in this passage. Let's get to it. Psalm 103, what it means that Messiah is Everlasting Father. Are you there? Psalm 103, we'll start in verse 1. 
famous psalm. I hope you know it. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Now, if I can just make a quick aside, uh, I shared some of this with the prayer meeting on Wednesday night. Uh, He says, think about all that God has done and forget not his benefits. Remember his blessings. You know how easy it is and how often we do the opposite, don't we? When we look back on our life, how quickly do we remember the negative things, the hurts, the times we were hurt, don't we? Isn't that true? What stands out in your mind? If a, if a hundred people say something to you, if 99 of them praise you and one gives you a harsh word of criticism, let me ask you, what do you remember? Yeah, you don't remember the 99, right? Spurgeon says we do the opposite. We hang on to all the refuse, In other words, we hang on to the garbage and we forget all the blessings. Psalm 103 is saying, let's flip that around. Let's flip that around. Let's let go of that and let's hold on to the blessings. Let's remember what he's done in our life. Uh, Think of it this way. Uh, You ever ever met somebody? You say, don't cross them. Why? They hold a grudge. You ever met somebody who holds a grudge? What if, what if Psalm 103 worked its way into your heart and you flipped it? And what if our church became known as being full of people who hold a blessing? My, my, don't you do a good deed for him. Why? He will never let you live it down. He will hold that positivity in his heart and he will thank you and be gracious to you and love you for as long as you live. Oh, that church knows how to hold a blessing. Drop the grudge, hold the blessing. Psalm 103.2. Like the old fellow that got saved from a hard life, pretty serious crimes. <laughs> that old fellow that said, if the Lord saves me and takes me to heaven, he'll never hear the end of it. <laughs> and he won't. For 10,000 years and 10,000 more, that guy's going to be singing the Lord's praises for saving his soul. Let him never hear the end of it. Forget not his benefits. Forget the garbage. Forget the grudge. Hold the blessing. And (laughs) we're not going to get to the rest of our verses if I continue on that track. So let's continue. Everlasting Father, verse 3. And he lists some of the personal blessings David has had. And, And Spurgeon thinks that this psalm was written later in David's life because he says this kind of writing, this kind of understanding doesn't grow. like It's got to be like an apple tree. He says this psalm is like the fruit that has been ripened by the full sunshine of God's mercy. In other words, as David gets older in his life, he realizes how much he needs God's mercy, and it becomes so sweet to him. And look at what he's done, David says, who forgives all your iniquity, heals all your diseases, redeems your life from the pit, crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Oh, this psalm is man's response to the benediction of God. What would it be like to hear from God this morning? What would it be like? Even... Take your earthly father. Some of you have heard this. Some of you didn't hear this. But from your earthly father, what would it mean to have him say to you, well done. I'm proud of you. Good job. I am pleased. His benediction, his blessing on your life. Well, what would it mean for the heavenly God of the universe to say that over your life? What would you say in response? You'd say Psalm 103. 
Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits. Look at what his goodness. I have the blessing of God on my life. This is man's response to the blessing of God. The Lord, verse 6, works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, uh, accuse, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west... So far does he remove our transgressions from us. Somebody once pointed out to me that uh, he removes our sins from the east as far as the east is from the west. He asked me, preacher, you know why he didn't say from the north to the south? I said, no. He said, because there's actually a north pole and a south pole, which would mean there'd be a finite distance. But there's no east pole. There's no west pole. Our sins are infinitely separated. I said, well, that'll preach. (laughs) And I just did. (laughs) It's good, isn't it? As a father shows, here's why, obviously why I picked the passage. Verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Oh, what a mercy this is. To, if there's any children in here, teenagers, don't you know what a mercy it is. When one parent is about to really come down on you, in that moment when another parent comes in and says, well, now don't be too hard on him. I've been there. I remember what it was like. Isn't it a mercy when the person in authority over you has been where you've been? They remember what it's like. Isn't it a mercy when you're an eighth grader? Don't you want somebody who's in charge of you to remember what it's like to be an eighth grader? Huh? <laughs> Hebrews 4 says we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses in every way. No, no, no. He was in every way tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's why we can go to God boldly. He knows. He knows what it's like. We have a God who's, if you will, been there. He knows what it's like to be brokenhearted. He knows what it's like to have his friends betray him. But he remains sinless. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it's gone and its place knows it no more. Oh, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from, here it is, everlasting too everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to his children's children to those who keep his covenant remember to do his commandments the lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all all right what does it mean to say messiah is everlasting father i uh want to give credit uh these points and many of these insights come from tim keller i read a sermon he preached back in 2011 called god our father if you want to go check that out you'll be blessed by that Uh, Keller's points, and I agree with him, for one thing, to say Messiah is Father, I'll give you three points to write down, is first of all, to live in covenant. It means to live in covenant. And what do I mean by that? When I say, when the prophet says Messiah's name is going to be called Everlasting Father, then for us to be in relationship with this God means we live in covenant. Let's go back and look at verses 13, 17, and 18. I'll put them up here on the screen. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant, there it is, and remember to do his commandments. What am I driving at? Uh, It is pretty popular to hear today, and you hear this often, you hear this around the holidays. You'll hear this statement, well, to every human on earth, we're all God's children. 
We're all God's children. All people are God's children. Uh, is that what the Bible teaches? Does the Bible actually say that? The answer is, yes and no, but mostly no. <laughs> I mean, yes and no, but mostly no. Here's why. If you think about father, how, how do you define father? If you, if you look it up in the dictionary or just think of it yourself, you know there's two aspects to fatherhood. Everybody knows. If you define father in the dictionary, one is biological progenitor, right? I mean, the, the father, right? You have, a, you have a biological source, a literal source of physical existence. Fine. But everybody knows that's not the fundamental meaning of father. Father also means to have a certain relationship of love and care. How many of you have been watching a, a, a cheesy holiday movie? And at some point, there's going to be a conversation that goes like this. You were never a father to me. How can you say that? I, you know, brought you into this world. Yeah, but it takes more than that to be a father. You were never there for me. You get the rest of this, the plot, okay, right? Uh, the point is not, the person is not saying, you are not my DNA. You're not the biological source of existence. That's not their point. Their point is at a fundamental level, there's one thing to be a father and another thing to actually be a father. That, that, that's their point. We get that. We understand that. We, we know that, that. That second part of the definition is more fundamental than the first. Well, the Bible feels the same way. That's why in Acts 17, when Paul's preaching to the Greeks, he can say, yes, there's a sense in which we are God is the source of everything. We owe all our existence to him. So yes, we are, and Acts 17 says this, we are all his offspring. So if you want to say, are we all God's children, that's why I say, well, the Bible would say yes. We, are, we all owe our existence to God. But John 1 says, but to say God is your father. Oh, in John 1, you know, you remember the, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, the word became flesh, and he came to his own, his own didn't reject him, but you remember this, verse 12, yet to all who received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent or human decision, but born of God, see? You'll never have the enormous benefits of being a child of God if you think it just happens automatically. It's something you enter into. Does that make sense? You enter into this covenant relationship. How? You need to be saved. You need to be born again. The Bible would say this is not automatic. You're not automatically a child of God in that sense of the word. You need to enter into covenant relationship with him. If you've never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you can't call God your everlasting father. You can't call God your father. You don't have that relationship. You need to receive him and enter into that covenant relationship. So when we talk about everlasting father, we talk about covenant, a relationship. But you can't say that without immediately following it with, because otherwise you might mislead people. The second thing, to live in covenant, but also to live in grace. To live in grace. What does this mean? <clears throat> Look closely at verses 10 through 12. To live in covenant, but also to live in grace. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he removes our transgression from us. God knows us thoroughly, forgives us completely, loves us endlessly. We have these sins and iniquities and transgressions, but he showers us with mercy and grace instead of dealing with us as we have dealt with him. What this is saying is God loves you permanently in spite of your sins and flaws because he's your father. 
Now, there's a, a, a right and a wrong way to relate to God. When, uh, some people think of God as a boss. When you relate to a boss, you're working for the boss. You can have a very cordial relationship with the boss, and you're going to be good with the boss as long as you're performing. As long as you're doing your job, you're following the laws, following the rules, you can have a great relationship with your boss. But if you don't perform, the relationship is over because your relationship is really based on your performance. But with a father, see, what happens to a father who has a child who starts to go off the rails, who doesn't, quote unquote, perform up to the standards? What happens to that relationship? They're fired? No, 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 just the opposite. The relationship intensifies. The father's heart is more engaged. It's painful, but it's engaged because of love. Your relationship with your child is not based on their performance, and that means everything. That's the difference between a family relationship and some sort of business dealing. So do you relate to God as boss, or do you live in grace? Do you relate to him as father? For people who think that God is their boss, they think, well, as long as I do these good things, then God will bless me, and if I stop doing the good things, I'll, I'll lose him. But in Father, it means, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, he's removed our transgressions. His love is upon you from everlasting to everlasting. Uh, what I'm trying to say in theological terms is this. Some of us struggle so much <clears throat> because we try to base our justification off of our sanctification. Do you understand that? We try to base our justification off our sanctification. Your justification is your being set right with God. Your sanctification is your growth in holiness. If you start getting those backwards, then you'll start to think your relationship with your heavenly father is contingent upon how much you're growing or not growing in your holiness. Got to get that untwisted. Your justification is settled because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection set you right with God. And out of that great love comes a life that wants to be more and more like his father. More and more like that person's father, growing in holiness, but the justification is settled. Too many Christians think they're right or wrong with God based on their behavior over uh, the last 72 hours. <laughs> See, you can't base, don't, stop, please, stop basing your justification on your sanctification. Live under grace. He's your father. One more way to illustrate this, just to drive it home. Imagine if uh, you have gone through adoption with a child and you've adopted this child and uh, those of you who have done this uh, great thing, uh, you know that sometimes it can be very costly, sometimes it can be very time consuming, it's not always an easy journey. You persevered and had your church praying and, and it's great, you got this kid and finally uh, he's your son. He's been living in your home officially as your son and um, uh, joins a, a baseball team, uh, starts playing a little league baseball and uh, oh man, you know, it's, it's bottom of the ninth inning and two outs and the bases are loaded and the team's down and your son's up to bat and he just gets a hold of one and I mean just blisters it right up over the fence and as he's crossing the bases the, che the team is cheering everybody's cheering every I mean up in the air but the proudest of all of course you and you're there to receive him and afterward big hug big celebration and he looks at you and says did I do good dad you say good this is baseball in Coleman, son. You did great, right? This is awesome. I'm so proud, and you're so, I just so couldn't be happy. Did I, did I really do good? Yes. Oh, good. Then can I be your son now? You would be gutted. That would rip you to shreds. Why? 
Because you would get down on your knee and you would say, wait, 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 wait. Did you think for one minute that our relationship was based upon your ability to hit a baseball? Did you think that's how this works? You are my son. I'd have been just as fatherly to you if you'd struck out. What, 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 what planet are Do you know how much it costs? <laughs> right? You see? What, what would it be for you, Christian, to hear your heavenly father get down on one knee and go, do you know how much I love you? Do you know how much your performance is? Wait, is that really what? Did, did you think for one second it was your performance? Go back to Psalm 103. Read it and read it and read it and read it until it is so deep in your heart as a father has compassion on his children. So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. As high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how much he loves you. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he's removed his transgressions from you. Now live in grace. Why? Because you have an everlasting father. Last. Live in covenant. Live in grace. Finally. To say that we have this everlasting father means to live in confidence when bad things are happening. <laughs> to live in confident trust when bad things are happening all around us. Because that, uh, believe me, there's going to be moments where uh, there'll be uh, temptations and whispers of unbelief. You say, wait a minute, preacher told me that, that I have this everlasting father, but why are these bad things happening? Look, at, look again at 8 through 10. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He'll not always chide nor keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. Here's what I'm driving at. This insight again comes from Keller. These verses are saying, even though God is your father, he still gets angry. He gets angry at you. Is, I, I mean, that, that, that you might even say. Uh, twice, the word anger is used in verses 8 through 10. Let me explain. A good father will get angry even though he loves you. Why? Because if a little child lies, for example, the father gets angry. Why? Don't you see? It's because he loves the child. He doesn't want to see the child grow up to be a liar. He realizes the danger that a lying, evil heart poses, and he, he realizes the trajectory. If you become a liar now as you're a child, that, that where that could land you years from now, there is great danger in sin. And so there's anger. He, 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 gets, he gets mad. There's righteous anger. So even human fathers get angry. But this passage is saying uh, God gets angry, but he doesn't. Watch this. This is very important. He gets angry, but look at verse 10. But he doesn't repay. He doesn't deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us. This is very subtle, but very important. Every parent knows, every father and mother knows, that there is a way that I'm describing of getting angry at your kid that is for the kid. It's for their benefit. It's to help them. Your anger is basically a form of love. You discipline the child, but you only bring as much discomfort and pain into the child's life that will be corrective for the child. So they lie, and now you can't go to the party. You have to stay in your room. You're grounded. You take away your device. Whatever it is, but you're doing that completely. There's, there's anger, but the whole anger is directed out of love for the child. You're mad, but you might say you're mad for their sake. But if every parent in here is honest, just for a second... There's another way to be angry. And that is not the angry for the kids' sake. That's when we're mad for our sake. 
We're just mad. The child has ruined our day or made us look bad or done something that we thought we were going to do this. Now we have to do this and we're mad. So we say, go to, your room, go to your room or take this away. And we're basically saying, you ruined my day. Now I'm going to ruin yours. <laughs> yeah. None of us have ever done this. I'm saying other. <laughs> now that's not loving to the child. That's just mad. Why? Because we're sinful, moms and dads, right? We don't always get this right. But here's what you need to know about God. These verses tell us, with God as our father, he never does that. Listen carefully. He never does retribution to his children. You see that? He does not repay. It's never quid pro quo. The eternal punishment for sin that we deserve was absorbed into the heart of the Messiah, Jesus, on the cross. So when God disciplines, when he lets bad things happen to you, you can, you can have confidence, you can trust. When God sees you doing something wrong and lets some of the consequences of that come into your life to wake you up and you feel like, man, what's going on? Remember, it's never payback. He's never abandoned you. He never will. He's working all things together for your good. God is your father. If he allows some bad thing to come into your life, he, you can rest assured it's never repayment. He's never angry in that sense, paying you back. I hope you'd live with more confidence knowing that everything that goes wrong, you can say, okay, the Father knows what he's doing. You can believe that. You can rest in that when you admit he's your everlasting Father. Well, to live in covenant, to live in grace, and to live in confidence, even when bad things are happening. And now, I, I, we've come to the end of our time, and I, I didn't even touch on the fact that you have all these blessings, and we've talked about Father so much, that you have all these blessings, but remember, he's everlasting father he's father forever so you not only have these blessings you have them eternally way more time than we have time to unpack but just if you would just look at verse 17 look at verse 17 the steadfast love of the lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children remember he is a name for every need i uh I, you know, th- th- this is what struck me about everlasting father. And I, I, sometimes you don't know, you know, maybe everybody feels this way. If you ever have to give a speech or you write a song or whatever, sometimes you hope like, what you're really hoping is, am I the only one? Like, am I the only one who's ever gone through this uh, or ever uh, uh, imagined this? But, but maybe we'll give it a shot. Uh, here's, here's what I think of with uh, everlasting father. So imagine a scene where, uh, there's a child, and um, it's like the night of December 25th. Not Christmas Eve, December 24th. This is presents have been open, wrapping paper everywhere, trees been a little battered by the excitement of the day. Okay? I mean, food is, you washed all the dishes you could, but everything's just strewn everywhere. It's the night of December 25th, or maybe, uh, and you're putting the kid to bed, little kid. And children, do not have the sophistication that adults have that we can, hide, we can hide our emotions a little more. With kids, it's just wide open, no filter, right? So imagine a little kid, and he's, oh man, been eating the advent calendar chocolate, okay? And he's, I mean, you know, the, the visions of sugar plums? Yeah, now it's the sugar plum high that he's come down from, right? The sugar high has crashed. The presents have been open. You're putting the kid to bed, and it's December 25th, right? Tomorrow's December 26th. That's the key in all this. 
and the kid's crying. And you say, what's wrong, little fella? And you know, hormones are going everywhere and the sugar high and all the excitement and all the adrenaline, uh, but now it's over. He said, well, did you not, did you not get all the good things to eat that you like to eat? Oh, no, no, I, I got all that. Well, did, I mean, did you not get some present that you were hoping to get? Oh, no, 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 I got every present. I got more than I could have ever dreamed. Well, what is it? I don't know, it's all over. I'm crying, it's all over. Now, maybe I'm the only one. These post-holiday blues, you know, maybe I'm the only one. But uh, So I Googled. I just Googled post-holiday blues, you know. Apparently, it's a thing. And everybody said the same thing. Uh, uh, tell your child, Christmas will be here before you know it next year. You know, uh, tell them it's not so bad. And I'm, I'm sitting here going, I know why. I know why, whether you're a child or you're a grown-up, you may feel that way. I know exactly why. The Bible says why. Because God has set eternity in the hearts of men. Those tears are the proof. What do I mean? I mean that there is a groove in every human heart that can only be filled by one thing. And the closest we can get the closest we've ever gotten, the the thing that looks like that would fill it is Christmas. It's got the feasting. It's got the joy. It's got the family. It's got everything you think would fill that groove. And when you do it, when you go through Christmas and you go through all that stuff and it's December 25th and you realize the groove has still not been filled, tears, grief. You thought, well, why don't I feel this whole like Christmas spirit I was supposed to feel? I thought that was it. I thought, And the answer, of course, is you don't need something that's annual. You need someone who is eternal. You need the one that is everlasting. And when we call Messiah, this baby born, everlasting Father, it means for all eternity, there won't be a December 26th ever again. The feasting, the joy, the family, those who've died in the Lord gathered around. Can you imagine the groove filled by him forever? Everlasting Father. I tell you, he's a name for every need. Chuck's going to come and lead us in a time of response and invitation. I want you to know how much he loves you. And you know, you know this. I, I, I've shared this before, but you know, you just consider what it costs for this sermon. You consider what it costs for the good news of the gospel to go forth. You know, in the gospels, Jesus prays a lot. He prayed at the tomb of Lazarus. He prayed. You go go, go back and look. Go back and look. He prays. And he, when he prays, he taught the disciples of all the things you could say about God. Call him what? Father. Jesus is always praying. Father. Father, I believe you heard me. Father, I know. Father, this. But there's one time in all the gospels, the only time Jesus prays to God and does not call him Father. It is when he is on Calvary's cross, bearing the sins of the world, mine, yours, he cries out from the cross, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which can only mean that Jesus, as he's bearing the weight of the world, Jesus lost his relationship to the Father so that you never would. He would be forgotten of God the Father so that you would be eternally remembered, see? 
for you to have that relationship. And for all these reasons, I, I, I say that to remind us all how much he loves you. He is truly, we can call Messiah, everlasting father. He's a name for every need. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that privilege just to call you Heavenly Father. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you that you fill the groove. You fill that void of eternity that Christmas and all the trappings of Christmas sure looks like it could fill it, but we recognize it cannot. It's only you. It's you. So grant that we might focus on what Christmas is really about. This child born, this son given. If there's anybody here who's not yet in relationship with you as Heavenly Father, let them trust the finished work of Jesus as the Spirit calls them to you. I pray they would respond in repentance and faith. And for believers who are basing their justification on their sanctification, let them hear afresh the good news of this Christmas story, the good news of the gospel. That our relationship with you is settled on the cross of Jesus Christ. That he is the source of all these blessings. And he is that source, that fatherly source forever. We thank you, Lord, that he is a name for every need. We pray all this in that matchless name of Jesus. Amen.